Hey you, thanks for being a valued listener of Remedial Herstory. Please consider subscribing so we can keep bringing you content. I wanted to let you know about a few things we offer beyond the podcast. If you love what we're talking about here, then you are going to love the Remedial Herstory Master's Classes we have linked in the show notes and on our website. We have three courses, one on pedagogy, U.S. history, and world history, and of course, talking about women in all of those contexts. We also have an annual Summer Educators Retreat, which is in person. Details about that are on our website. Our website is also packed with learning materials, including articles for every era of U.S. and world history that we built with a collaboration of over 20 historians. We also have lesson plans for elementary, middle, and high school that involve analysis of primary source material and get students doing history. We also have a video series that goes along with that. All of this is only possible because of the generous contributions from our patrons. You can also support Remedial Herstory at remedialherstory.com giving or by becoming a monthly patron at patreon.com slash remedialherstory. Thanks for helping us make history. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? Today, we have Dr. Valerie Moyer back with us to talk about the impact of hormonal testing mm. on women's sports. This is big. Let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50% the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Brooke, we got to be quick because there's so much in this topic. <laughs> Good. Good to know. Um, we are going to be talking with Dr. Valerie Moyer about hormonal testing. Brooke, what is hormonal testing? <laughs> Interesting question, Kelsey. You tell me. <laughs> no, can I tell you what I think it is and then yeah. you tell me if I'm right or wrong? I'm sure you're right. Um, I think it is when athletes get um, prepared to compete at a certain level, they get tested and they have to be in a certain threshold for their hormonal balance to be considered female or male. Yeah. I mean, the thing, the thing that's so weird is that we have all this research that shows that like gender is kind of like spectrum-y with like some binary aspects. Yep. Right? And there are we know there are intersex people yep. right people who have some mixed body parts um internal external whatever and hormonal testing is intended to protect the women's category of sports sports and and keep out male athletes so that it is this space that women can Compete. Compete in on a fair and level playing field. Interesting. And, and so while that's great, yeah. it, it's also – I anytime I hear that word protect for women's sports, I always get a little, like, twitchy because they used to say, like, we need to protect women from the dirty realm of <laughs> politics, so let's not give them the vote. Yeah, you, know? you hear exclude. I hear – well, I hear, like, I don't really know what that means. Like, what are you protecting us – from and i, I you like our little brains un we won't understand yeah <laughs> like an unfair playing field which like i want a fair playing field in yeah. sports you know like if i was 
on a run or on a bike and someone had a motor behind them, I'd be like, what the hell? You know, <laughs> but unfair. Yeah. Yeah. Take your but motor then home. It gets kind of weird because like part of humanity is that we have these differences that make well, us uniquely us. Right. True. And that there's also a lot going on right now in sports with transgender, which I think we get into a later topic, but yeah, there's a lot of conversation right now about, what are the appropriate levels for athletes? Yeah. And, you know, some women are like, shit, if you tested me six years ago, I'd be the same levels you're testing me today. I'm not taking testosterone. Like, yeah. I, this is me. Yeah. And they're really frustrated by some of the outcomes of this stuff. So I'm curious what yeah. what we learned. So we're going to save talking. I mean, obviously, you can see that, like, trans conversations about trans women is like all over this yeah but yet we want to kind of isolate it a little bit and just talk about what this means for, for women's sports cool and then in a later episode we'll talk about trans women and in sports and like what that looks like and how that's you know impacting the game and that sort of thing great let's get into this I'm Val Moyer. I'm a recent PhD in women's gender and sexuality studies at Stony Brook University. Um, I graduated and defended my dissertation last May. Uh, and my dissertation looked, <laughs> thank you. Uh, my dissertation looked at gender and sports policy and specifically policies around testosterone levels uh, in the women's category at the elite level. So the international level. So the Olympics um, was a big factor in that. Um, but it obviously relates to a lot of debates going on today. Um, right now, I am currently researching for Athlete Ally, which is an LGBTQ plus advocacy nonprofit for sports and teaching at Simmons College. And I'm also a board member of uh, the Remedial History Project. So that's I exciting. Yes, you are. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I love that. So, um, and I'm so grateful to have you here today to talk to everybody because unlike a lot of the people we brought on our podcast, you look at this from a gender studies perspective. Your background is in in sports, which Brooke and I are both former college athletes. So oh, we nice. love that. Although we weren't D1 like you, you little badass. <laughs> <laughs> you were lacrosse, is that right? Did you play lacrosse? lacrosse? and yeah. soccer so i did i did two, uh, two sports yeah two sports um brooke played soccer here nice. at Plymouth state where i am a teacher so um yeah yeah and i just i love the lens through which you look at everything i think it's really important so today we're going to talk about um women in the olympics and the boston marathon and things like that and so I, why do you feel like this is such an important topic for a classroom today like what does it tell us about you know i think social studies so is this why is this an important thing to investigate about our society um i think Sometimes we don't think about sports as like a, a worthy thing to study or we don't study sports. Um, but a lot of things happen in and around sports that tell us about society, right? So, um, you know, today we have huge fandoms of major sports teams and so many, you know, kids throughout college participate in sports. So it is really important to not just be aware of what's going on kind of from like an exercise science perspective, but to look at this historically, both to understand the challenges we're, we're facing today, like the, you know, underfunding of women's sports in general, but also 
to look for like sources of inspiration, I think too, for young athletes and things like that. Absolutely. It's funny. I was at the gym just the other day and I was running on the treadmill for a 20 minute warmup. And in front of me, there were like three screens Mm -hmm. and all playing, you know, sports. Yes. 20 minutes. I'm on the treadmill. Mm -hmm. One woman was visible on the screen for 20 minutes of ESPN coverage. Not a woman was playing a sport. Not a woman was an expert on a sport. And not a single woman's sport stat came across the bottom. Wow. Yeah. I was just like, and I'm, I'm like, scanning all three screens like (laughs) daring one of them to mention a woman and to your point like that actually said a lot and then I turned around and was like noticing how many people were actually there like how many girls were actually there as a comparison to boys I was like wow there's only three girls in this entire room like that's kind of fascinating Mm -hmm. um and then And then, you know, just like the amount of uh, gendered slurs that I heard thrown around in that space, I I was like, this is so insulting. But like, we basically created a a space where we say girls don't exist here. So why not, you know, have a locker room, apparently acceptable in our society, locker room chat thrown around. So, yes. And that's a great example of like, the way that we kind of promote and televise men's sports um, creates this idea that like sports are exclusively masculine spaces. Um, And that like it does, it bleeds into our lives and our experiences at at gyms and teams and things like that. There's a great study by Cheryl Cookie and Michael Mesner that looks at um, coverage of women's sports on mainstream news or mainstream TV outlets. And it has stayed at like 4% of those for the past 30 years. It's fluctuated a little bit, but it's around 4%. Uh, so you are right that it's like a problem, a huge overwhelming problem. Yeah. Oh, that just, like I, there's a long pause because I'm yes. just like so infuriating and just mm-hmm. a little like, not so humble brag here. Like I was outlifting many of these people that were throwing around the P word, which drives me insane. And I'm just like, I can't. Probably better form too. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) I can't. So anyway, I'm really excited to learn more about um, all of this with you. So why do you, um, sorry, what sources do you think teachers should be going to, to learn more about testosterone and, um, and all this like testing in sports and things like that. Where should they, where should we direct them? Yes. Um, there's a lot of, I'm like a scholar of this, so I don't feel like I have the greatest things that I would give students in like K through 12, uh, things. But for example, there's a book called sex testing by Lindsay Parks Piper that really digs into the the history, she's done an incredible job with the archives and really going through it. So that would actually be, I think it's also pretty accessible to read. Um, so that would be a good place to like look at over the years what's going on with sex testing. Sorry, who was, who was that again? Could you repeat then? Yeah, Lindsay Parks Piper, and I'm happy to give you her name too. Yeah, we'll um, put the show notes for everyone. Great. And then what's a little funny is there are actually a lot of children's books on 
women athletes. Um, mm-hmm. but that doesn't always give you the, the depth and the context that you want, but they're interesting sources nonetheless. And then the great thing is there's a ton of coverage that you can really dig into in terms of primary sources in newspapers and sports journalism. And you can see how women were portrayed uh, in those really well. And then that also feeds into, if we're talking about the Olympics, those decisions of the Olympic, the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, um, Mm -hmm. they will put out consensus statements that are publicly available. But you can also find, if you go through their archives, you can find the meeting minutes from those meetings. And that also tells you a lot about kind of the priorities and how they were describing and thinking about women in sports. Hmm. That sounds yeah. fascinating, but I think you're right. Like I'm, I, it's coming to mind just how much sports are covered in the media and it doesn't necessarily mean it's great coverage to right. about like, it could be really stereotypical or sexist portrayals of female athletes um, and mm-hmm. probably a lot of commentary on their bodies and whatever. So yeah, I think yes. um, th- I imagine most history teachers could pull some articles from the 20th century in the New York Times archive or ProQuest um, if they have access to ProQuest um, historic newspapers. Um, so that could be that could be really cool. There's also Chronicling America um, from the Library of Congress where they have like local newspapers. Um, One thing, you know, and if you wanted to go way, way back to, you could certainly highlight the lack of women's sports being covered in, you know, we've got women in the Olympics as far back as like what the 1890s and then women are running, you know, track and field is available to them by 1928. Right. So yeah, yeah, that's correct. um, if those things are happening and there's no coverage of it, that actually tells us a lot. Um, yeah. Yeah. And the other thing there, I think the lack of coverage or like the, what we would think of as like bad or problematic portrayals of women is definitely a theme. Um, but I'm thinking of sports studies scholar who specifically focuses on black women in sports, Dr. Amira Rose Davis. And she points out that actually, if you go to like black newspapers and look at different sources than kind of the mainstream there is like some celebration of black women athletes and so there are sort of there's these different narratives that kind of bubble up in different sources when you look between them so yeah great stuff to kind of dig into the complications there yeah yeah. Well, and I think, you know, the further back you go too, when you have those like split news sources and, you know, mm-hmm. the white community and the black community or, you know, people of color community, like um, just the difference in the way that they, they viewed different events. And we've, we've talked about that a lot on our, on our podcast already. So I think that's a really great point about how um, different communities might have might value women's sports differently. Um, I, I think that's, mm-hmm. that's so interesting. So tell me a little bit about this topic. Like, you know, we've got, we've got this test and this is your, your world, right? So like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> why, why is this, tell me, tell me about this event, th- this topic. Why do people, why are people so passionate about testing people's gender and <laughs> hormone levels? Like, why is it important? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I can't I don't know if I can 
explain why people are so passionate about it, but um, <laughs> I think the history tells us a lot. So you are right that uh, women have competed in the Olympics since 1900, actually, is the first uh, year. So it's after the first men's Olympics, essentially. But basically from that time, as women are you know, pushing to compete at these levels, collegiate, you know, international levels, elite levels, there's suspicion and anxiety about uh, what they are doing there, basically, and like, particularly around good performances. So in 1928, when women were allowed to compete in track and field, that was seen as like a particularly masculine sport, because it was considered like pure sport. Um, and there was, you know, it was a lot of like exertion, it wasn't graceful and feminine in kind of this like Victorian era white femininity like swimming was seen as like graceful and feminine right track and field was not um and so there was already like that was hard for women activists at the time to push to get that included um and that's a, a great story as well but there was suspicion around really good track athletes already kind of like going into it um and then we there was a key event in 28, but then also again in 1936, um, Stella Walsh was a Polish athlete who competed uh, in that Olympics. And Helen Stevens was an American athlete who was like favored to win. <laughs> and I'm like trying to make sure I get this right. And they're both so iconic and interesting. Yes. And um, Helen Stevens is so, you know, she she's so she's from Missouri. Right. And mm -hmm. just like kind of the pride of her local community. Um, yes. Yeah, a huge rivalry between the two of yes. them. And yes. the Polish athlete, she's lives in like in the States and trains here, even though she represents Poland in the mm -hmm. Olympics, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I can't remember exactly when she immigrated to the U.S. I think it was just after because she was sort of doing mm -hmm. this not like bidding war because they couldn't be professional, but like who was willing, who would give her the best, you know, training setup. Um, and it wound up being the U S but I think she was living and competing for Poland at the time. So Stella Walsh wins and that's like a huge upset. Um, and so there was this idea that, uh, Helen Stevens or I think I'm getting this backwards, but there were basically barbs thrown between them in the press about like, well, you must be a man, like you must be a man in disguise. Um, and so they were both checked and it does not say exactly how this happened um, in historical records, but it was presumed that like officials checked them visually to like ensure that they were both women and so they were both cleared so that was the first formal written down instance of sex testing but it probably occurred in some form even before that i mean this this was also the 1936 olympics was like the nazi olympics that was held in berlin to kind of to try and um in part stop the second world war from happening to try and like appease Hitler. And there was all this complication around race and gender. Um, and that's where Jesse Owens is, you know, winning four gold medals and disrupting the idea of the superior Aryan athlete. So there's so much going on packed into that uh, Olympic games, but that's where we also see this first instance of like documented sex test happening. And so this kind of 
idea or suspicion or anxiety that there will be men who masquerade or disguise themselves as women in order to compete and to do well. That was sort of an idea, but what was more happening um, was women had intersex variations. So they had some kind of genetic or physiological uh, difference that's not neatly categorized as male or female and might not have known that. So there's an athlete, um, an intersex athlete who also competed at the 1936 Olympics and got fourth in the high jump um, and has sort of been this historical figure that people go back to, to say, look, like, you know, Nazi Germany did this, that they disguised a male athlete as a, a woman um, in order to compete. But that wasn't the case. Like historians later went back and found that this person's documentation was always kind of unclear. And it seems that it was clear that they, that they were intersex and later identified as a man. Mm-hmm. But that kind of fed this narrative of, of when people look back and try to justify the necessity of sex tests, they look back and say, like, look at this athlete from, you know, Nazi Germany. Other countries will do this. Other countries will try to uh, use this technique to get ahead um, in the Olympics. So that's sort of the early history. And then what happens is in the 60s, this is kind of like coming back up and and it's becoming formalized. This is also, there's sort of an overlap with contention around performance enhancing substances. And so there's a lot of like new biomedical testing to, to cap cheating or advantage and things like that. And this is also the area of era of the Cold War. So that's really influencing what's going on. So the same narrative of like, uh, you know, Western journalists are saying Soviet countries will, you know, disguise male athletes as women to get ahead or, or they're, they can't be really women like look at them. They're, you know, because they were training better than us, uh, in so many ways. And so in 1968, the first official chromosome screening goes into place at the uh, Mexico City Games for all women athletes. So every single woman who competed at that Games was screened for their chromosomes. And that starts a kind of a continuous few decades of time in which every single woman athlete is screened either at the Olympics or through their sports international or national governing body. So they do that and then they carry around this certificate, which is called a, a femininity certificate uh, on some of the years. Or they have documentation that they're like cleared, that their chromosomes are XX. And so that goes on until the late 1990s at the Olympics. So it's long and there's a lot of pushback, um, not necessarily always from athletes, but from like the medical community people saying, you know, this is unethical. And there's a few other instances that I'm happy to talk about of people kind of are getting disqualified, failing these sex tests. But there's many more that we possibly don't have, you know, information on because what would happen is women would go through these screenings and they would quote unquote fail, which means they had some difference in their chromosomes and they would be told to fake an injury or drop out. And so those are the instances that we don't have documentation on from that, you know, that whole time period where. Whoa, so that's like a missing history. Like yeah, what yeah. happened there? Like to the public, they just got injured. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So there's sort of an unknown number of women that 
did that, that encountered that. Um, and instead of going public, which, you know, like it's hugely disruptive to their lives and, and athletic careers, as people have seen, they just dropped out. And so then in 1992, so track and field is kind of where a lot of the, the focus continues to be. So in, 1992, the International Association of Athletics Federations, which is the governing body for track and field, it's now called World Athletics, stops, ends sex testing, or ends those chromosome screenings. And they just go to a system where you have to get checked or by a physician to be able to compete. So much like lower grade, not at the event itself, not as invasive. And then it takes a, a number of years until 1999 for the Olympics to follow suit. And so in that time, we have, you know, a couple summer and winter Olympics where there's still the sex testing happening. And at this point, it's changed names a few times. Um, and it's now called gender verification, which we can kind of pick apart because it's, it's still very much based in biology. It's not really about gender at all, but it's meant those names are meant to kind of like soften the approach and make them seem more you know, humane and less invasive and more ethical. So 1996 is the last Summer Olympics where this occurs. And that's in Atlanta. I went to the archives there and there's some really interesting details about it, which I'm happy to get into. But people are kind of continually, the medical community especially, is saying like, we don't need this. It's too much. It's, you know, ensnaring the wrong people. And it's not even really about competitive advantage. Um, and so 96 no one is disqualified. So there are a number of women, I think seven is the number, that had some genetic and chromosomal variations. People who were doing the testing implemented a kind of a secondary check, and we don't really know what that entailed. But it was the point was to say, these people are not male, uh, and so they should be allowed to compete. So we kind of see that the the protest from the medical community is working and changing people's minds. Can I just clarify there? So essentially their perspective mm -hmm. that someone who is not male, mm -hmm. therefore classified as female. And it, yeah. And that's so fascinating because, you know, like part of the work of the LGBTQ plus movement has been mm -hmm. to like create this like non-binary sort of choice, but in a binary yeah. system, essentially we've said there's male and then there's not male. Yeah. And yes. Yeah. That, and, and I think that's interesting because we get like pressed a lot to be like, so what, how do you define women? And uh, that's such a hot button topic today. But what the medical community is saying is that women mm -hmm. is not male. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, but it's almost flipped now, I think, because okay. it's like, uh, because you know, the women's category is seen as like the thing where we need to restrict who's in this to create sense of fairness. Like that's the argument. And so now I think we're almost seeing the opposite of like, unless you are a cisgender, you know, XX chromosomally woman, like you're, you don't count, you're out of this category. Mm -hmm. So it, it has definitely shifted, but what happened in the 96 Olympics is really interesting, I think, because there was this discussion among medical professionals and people who really cared about this, advocates to say, we need to end this form of testing. And they were in communication with each other. So 
when I looked at the archives, there is like a, a fax group, and I'm not remembering the name, but of like really big deal people at you know Yale, and they're in communication with each, each other to try to convince the IOC to stop this. And so the gender verification like screening setup, the Olympics has to, you know, organize a clinic every time they do it. They have to do all this testing on, you know, hundreds of of women athletes. And so the bid to do that goes to geneticists at Emory University. They, it seems like there was some pushback. Uh, so Louise or Louis J. Elsass was in charge of the whole thing. And he seemed like he didn't really want to do it. He he disagreed with it on an ethical level. And so he was writing to the past people that had been in his position at Olympic Games and asking, you know, will the IOC listen to me if I argue with them? And how do you do this? There were a lot of technical, like, how do you get this done? But also, like, when do I actually need to tell them the results of these screenings? Like, how can I kind of keep them out of my business as long as I can? It seems like that's what they did. It was set to go to Emory. There was a little bit of pushback and it was going to go to a third party commercial thing. And they they kept it within Emory. I'm interpreting a little bit here, but it seems like the goal was to do this as like non-invasively as possible and, you know, keep as few people as possible disqualified. Um, so they ran the tests and they they did find these seven women, but they agreed to a secondary assessment. And so the report that got that was officially done for the IOC said, we did this already. Basically, like we did this, we found these seven women, but uh upon further, you know, examination, like they're good to go. They're they're screened, they're done. So I think that's a, another really interesting example of like thinking about authorities and the way that we test these things and who who gets to know that information when and that that can be really impactful to like allowing people to compete and then the the same guy like went on a paper with these other people that were in communication to speak out against this practice and to try to push it to end but the thing is it didn't really end after 1999 so yeah <laughs> that's a, a second chapter that we are in right now yeah, we are yeah. in that. And it's it's so contentious. It, it sounds like there's so much here to explore mm-hmm. with. I, I could see exploring all of these with students. I want to just make yeah. a little plug for a book called Fast Girls. Mm-hmm. It's a historical fiction book about the 1928, 32, and 36 Olympics, which you nice. referenced sort of earlier. And we interviewed the author in season one, way back in season one, um, it was the first interview that we ever did on this podcast. Yeah, um, and it's it's a really good book. I th- and and, and um, the interview is people can keep people can certainly listen to, but I also encourage people to read the book because I think it's a mm-hmm. good exploration of those early years, and it gets into some of the very early conversations about what is a woman in this in this yeah. sport and. Um, I, you know, I think it's really powerful. Can I ask you a kind of a personal question about this? Like, yes, yeah. <laughs> as a female athlete competing at such a high level, like, did you ever feel like, did you feel protected by people, per, you know, did you feel good being protected by people making sure that I think it's viewed as cheating, right? Like you have all these things or 
I know you're involved in all these advocacy organizations for LGBTQ athletes. And so how do like how do you feel knowing that there's sort of these camps that trying to protect these sports? That's a great question, Kelsey. Well, I do want to clarify. So I competed at Division One at University University of Vermont. So that was kind of high level, but also not. So I have friends that have gone on to be pro athletes. And I talk with them about this a lot. And there's sort of a level of an initial gut feeling of like, yeah, I want my competitions to be fair, that I think a lot of people have. But as you kind of get more into it or understand this context and really think about it from the perspective of women who are being tested and then disqualified or, you know, kept out of their sport for things for like genetic and biological variation that for, for women with intersex conditions that they have no control over, it becomes a very different conversation. I think about less about protection. I don't think that, um, for me or the the people I'm in contact with, like we don't. It's not about feeling protected, right? It's about um, having some semblance of a a space to compete that you think is fair. So I think there's from myself and from people I've talked to uh, the narrative that like having high testosterone is cheating. I think like doesn't fly. Like people are like, no, that's that's not cheating whether it's an advantage that we should regulate, I think is definitely an open question. But to me, I was always, I was studying gender and sexuality at the same time as I was competing at uh, University of Vermont. And so I was always coming at it with a like, this doesn't really get it. And, you know, these binary categories, like they can't hold on. Like I kept thinking like, this isn't going to work forever. Like because non-binary gender is a thing. And because as we know, like, sex itself is a spectrum. Uh, and so the idea that you can encapsulate everyone with this like very limited category is not true. I like how you talked about sort of genetic variations because like I'm a triathlete now Mm -hmm. in my adult life and I do Ironman and I just have this like neat thing where I don't sweat as much, which means I don't need to hydrate as much. I don't need as many electrolytes as my Mm -hmm. counterparts. And it's awesome. Um, But then, then um, I think about like, I will never ever be a good basketball player because I'm five, six. And Mm -hmm. there are lots of women that are over six feet tall, who are by all the check marks of what, you know, they're looking at to like figure out if they're female or not, <laughs> you know, yes, like, yes, they, right. they don't have extra testosterone. They don't have, you know, all these things, but yet they're over six feet tall. And like the number of women that are over six feet tall is so small, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And like those variations exist and we accept that they exist. We accept that, of course, those six feet tall women play basketball. And of course, you little, little Eckert lady with your five, six frame, like you're never going to, you know, you're never going to play basketball. But yeah, then, but you don't sweat. Yeah. Right. And I don't <laughs> sweat. sweat. And like, <laughs> you know, and, and I think it's funny because those things people have no problem accepting. Yes. But then yeah. I think these other things, it's like, well, yeah, like some people have more testosterone than others and some people have more this than, you know. So I yeah. I really like the kind of un, like separating it from the 
politicized conversations about gender and Mm -hmm. and all these other ways that we vary from one another. And that's just part of the unique thing about being human, you know? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the big example that I've seen, you know, cited over and over again, which is true, is like Michael Phelps is like a genetic anomaly for swimming in multiple ways. Um, Doesn't make as much lactic acid, like has a huge wingspan, things like that. And we are not regulating him out of the sport. Sorry, your arms are too long. You yeah, can't yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But when it's about sex and gender in particular, that we like freak out. Um, and the other thing that doesn't get, we often talk about biological variations, which I think is a great conversation, but like, we don't talk about the societal privileges that also allow people to, you know, train and compete at a high level. And that can be in some instances, like an even bigger predictor of your athletic success, um, particularly in some sports. So like, on a personal level, I grew up in like, suburban America, where the air was like, very clean, and we had paved bike paths that were safe to run on and like, little neighborhood swim teams that kind of like built in access to sports not only does it help you but it also that's now part of my you know like physiological capabilities right it has laid the groundwork and so we sort of do this thing where we separate out biological advantages from like social advantages and we don't talk about the fact that they they actually overlap and like inform each other mm-hmm. you know when michael phelps started swimming he was good. Like, so he kept swimming. And then that that itself, building that endurance becomes its own advantage. Yeah. So it's really contentious. I, I read um, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, and he actually yes. talked about Canadian hockey teams uh, in, mm-hmm. in that context a little bit. And he found that they all had similar birth months. Well, what's interesting, like all the pro hockey players had similar mm-hmm. birth months. And to your point about, you know, being good at something and then getting that encouragement and that encouragement kind of like snowballing over time or having some small advantage over everybody else that kind of fuels it going on. When you were talking, I was thinking about playing lacrosse and I happened mm-hmm. to um, just live in a community that offered, you know, this is in the early 90s that offered a youth lacrosse program, which you know, like lacrosse is one of those sports where you, it's really fine motor skills to use. Yeah. I can't do it. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, here I am eight, seven, eight years old, like learning how to use a lacrosse stick. And so flash forward to middle school, when we had school-wide programs, I already had like three, four years on everybody learning these skills. And so of course I was the leading scorer come high school, you know, <laughs> like of course mm-hmm. college level lacrosse, because like I was head, you know, I had years of experience ahead of everybody. And that was just because of this really this two women who lived in the community who were like, let's teach people how to play lacrosse. Yeah. But going back to Malcolm Gladwell's book, you know, these guys all have similar birth dates. And what it turned out was, you know, in school, you have those that cutoff for cutoff date, yeah. what, makes a, what makes a kindergartner or whatever. And all of these guys had been on the older range of entry. So they were in many ways, like I have an August birthday. So I was always 
the youngest kid in every class and on every sports team. And I think about, you know, my struggles in high school trying to get on varsity teams. And in retrospect, it's like, well, yeah, I was like literally a year younger than most of my classmates, <laughs> you know, yeah. trying, trying to compete with them. Um, as we're all developing and you know, <laughs> like going through all these shifts. And, you know, I think that's that's also like a powerful advantage that people don't really think about. Um, mm-hmm. so that's I this is such a neat topic. And I think um I'm excited to to look at some of these sources that you've recommended to people to look into testing, to look into sports. And I, I appreciate your perspective that you didn't necessarily feel protected by, you know, of course you want fairness, but mm-hmm. you also want to make sure that people are, um, you know, being treated, being treated fair too in the process. Right, right. The alternatives and the humiliating nature of like identifying as female and being told that you're not female enough. Like that is so hum- heartbreaking, you know? Yeah, yeah, it really is. So I think, that brings us up, especially Malcolm Gladwell's, Gladwell's book. I'm glad you mentioned it to the yeah. present. Um, because I think even Gladwell does this too, where he kind of says Castor Semenya, who's a South African Olympian, who's been kind of at the center of this controversy um, around her sex. And she, I think, produces naturally higher levels of testosterone, but The only reason we know anything about her medical conditions are from leaked information to the press during her investigations. And so Gladwell's kind of saying, like, she shouldn't be in the women's category. And all of this, you know, nuance about advantage or like, right, that study of like the birth dates of great hockey players, like all of that goes away sometimes when we talk about these uh, sex differences and kind of this line around women's sports, I think. So right now, what's happened is the International Olympic Committee, to some extent, but more so World Athletics, which is the governing body of track and field, right after sex testing officially ended, um, there was a policy put in place saying that they could investigate in suspicious instances. And that word suspicious was used in the policy. And then, but then since then, um, in 2009, Castor Semenya ran at uh, Worlds, World Championships in Berlin uh, in the 800 and won pretty significantly. And from that race was immediately kind of investigated for, for gender verification, essentially. And there's a lot of media coverage, you know, really dissecting her appearance as muscular, as tall, you know, as as not feminine. But of course, we have to think about how we judge whether someone's feminine because I think a lot of like whiteness and Western or European beauty standards are really baked into how we visually tell um, whether someone is a woman, right? And so she's been investigated and then there were there were subsequent policies put in place by world athletics that were really explicitly trying to quantify and put policies in place around testosterone levels for women. And those were fought in the court of arbitration in sport, the Swiss court, because there was another athlete from India, Duti Chand, who disputed her case and, and challenged this court ruling or this policy. And both of these women did not know about those differences, like 
sex variation differences. Um, they identified as women throughout their whole lives. And it was through this process that that came to light. Given that challenge, the policy was like taken away for a couple of years. And we had the 2016 Olympics. Pastor Semenya won the 800. She has yet to break the world record, which I think is an important thing that no one really talks about. Even though she's winning the races when she's allowed to compete, she has not broken the world record. And then in, I think, 2018, 2019, we saw this new policy from World Athletics that was specifically about events around her specialty around the 800. So it was the events from the 400 to the one mile were restricted, restricted events and had a lower testosterone level that was acceptable for women in those events. They published this with their own science to back it, which has been, you know, heavily criticized in terms of statistics and what they're drawing on. They studied performances from past uh, world games, but even the the kind of statistical analysis doesn't match up. And the events that they chose are still pretty arbitrary. Based on their own statistical analysis, it should have included the pole vault and the hammer throw and not the one mile. And it, you know, those got shifted uh, really to target Castor Semenya. And so since that time, very quickly, uh, other athletes have come forward and, and either publicly said, this applies to me too, or are suddenly unable to compete in their specific events. One athlete moved up in events to avoid this uh, policy. Other people are moving down to the sprints. And so we're really in the midst of kind of a crisis of, of what's happening. And then the other important kind of background to keep in mind is in the U.S. and Western European countries, at least, if not more, kind of Western world countries have intervened on intersex infants as part of the medical practice from like the 1950s forward. And so what we're seeing is women predominantly from African countries are the ones who are getting caught in this in this policy or getting revealed um, to have intersex traits. But that's not it's not really about kind of race or ethnicity differences. It's not that this is more concentrated um, in people of African descent. It is that our medical system has been kind of creating, like implementing the sex binary more than it naturally exists uh in in humans to begin with fascinating so in africa they don't force people into those binaries as much right. yeah and so, so like so developing countries have not had the same like medical protocol um on intersex infants that we've seen here and so there's just more variation that's allowed to happen that's not to say that the gender binary is not you know, very much in place uh, in many places across the globe. Um, but it is, I think some people look at this and they say like, oh, you know, women of African descent must have higher testosterone naturally. Like that's what's happening. And that's not true. That's sort of like this weird scientific racism cropping up again. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Classic. Scientific yeah. Classic. Great. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Oh, geez. Louise. Well, that's really that's really interesting. All of, yes, I, I'm, a lot going on. 
I think that's great context for people to have in order to have these conversations about it. Because I think what you're highlighting for me is just how much more complicated all of this actually is. Um, and, and that's a really mm-hmm. like multicultural perspective on something that, you know, and I didn't even think about that. And that would be a yeah. really great way to look at um, how many people really are intersex and and having a population whose medical practices are are different would give us different results. So mm-hmm. I never thought about that. Yes, <laughs> yes. And actually, I think a great example is Stella Walsh. So if we go way back to the 36 Olympics, she immigrates to the U.S. and becomes like a beloved figure in Cleveland, Ohio, and has a, a great track career. I think other people I've read somewhere I need to find it again but other people would train and would want to compete against her because she was consistently good throughout Mm. like older into her life but she was murdered in a robbery in 1980 uh, and the police autopsy revealed that she had intersex anatomy as well and but that was not known throughout her life right yeah and that's that's I've always been confused with that because when she's at the Nazi Olympics, they inspect her, right? So how, like, right. do we know, like, what was, no, what, like. We don't, but if I if I had to guess, and this is, like, not good historian practice, but if I had to guess, this was, like, an outward, like, she just, like, stood naked and they were, like, yep, <laughs> got You're it, looking. anatomy checked. <laughs> and that the autopsy was internal, right? It was, like, a full she internal. Was murdered. Yeah. 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 Oh, I know. So, I I, yeah. I actually knew about her death and, and that they discovered that she was intersex. And I um I just it's such a horrible ending that I like yes. <laughs> I hate her story because I'm like, I don't want her to be murdered, you know. Yeah. But, yeah. but then it <laughs> also gives us this really interesting window into something that we wouldn't have had otherwise um mm-hmm. done an autopsy. So yeah, and that we sort of remember her as an intersex athlete, but like throughout her life, we didn't know that. Right. Yeah. So that's, I think that's another kind of historical interpretation thing to keep in mind. Um, but her story, because it's 1980, like just works in support of continued sex testing that was happening. Right. So they said like, Oh, well, of course, you know, we just had this instance where we thought someone was, you know, quote unquote, a woman, however you define that in these terms. And she turned out to be to have intersex traits, right? And so it spurs on the continuing kind of focus on testing women athletes. Yeah. Dr. Moyer, thank you so much yeah. for your time and for illuminating all of these really interesting facets of something that I think our media and our politicians like to oversimplify. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for having me. Happy to talk about this anytime. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.